Okay, uh, thank you. So everyone tuning in, all our friends uh, out there who love to listen to the podcast or watch the video from the Film Roundtable, we come to you with another session. I'm just going to give ourselves a little introduction here to the three players, and then I'm going to turn it off over to them. Um, we have a couple of uh, constant collaborators, Mr. Sean Peters and then Mr. Akeen McKenzie, some repeat customers to the Film Roundtable world. Um, and we've got Arthur Jaffa here to, you know, talk with uh, two old friends of ours. So uh, once again, this is Doug Torres, and I'm going to listen, um, as I hope a lot of you out there will. And I'd like to turn it over right now. So Sean and Akeen, please. Pleasure is mine. The Film ta Roundtable invites you all. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. All right. What's happening, party people? What's up? Um, you want to make sure we correct the name is Arthur Jaffer. Yeah, that's, that's good. <laughs> and uh, Akeem McKenzie, two of my favorite people on the planet and some people I really look up to in terms of uh, and have some of the best conversations on the planet with. You know, if you ever get a chance to meet either one of these cats in public, they are two of the most incredibly negative Negroes. <laughs> <laughs> critical, but, critical Negro. Critical, critical Negro. But, really, but informed in super intensely informed negativity. So if you want to, you know, but one of the things I think that you know I've had a chance to work with Akeen extensively, and I've worked with with AJ a little bit. Um, but and but just beyond work, one of the things that I have always just been so intrigued with and enthralled by is the methodology of both of your your work in terms of how it informs your thinking. Um, and really, you know, you're almost like some like you know you're almost like archivists in a way, you know, um, in terms of your process, in terms of your artistic work, you know. And I think what lacks these days a little bit just because of the nature of things. Um, Akeen, you and I were talking about this yesterday, but you know, one of the things that I don't wait, wait for you to get out. You know, there you go. I was saying one of the things that me and Akeen were talking about yesterday was that no, I felt know, like we did too much yesterday. I was like, we had a three-hour conversation. We haven't left anything for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I would say I would have blocked that. I would have blocked that. I know it's like save it, save it, save it. <laughs> we just got into all kinds of stuff, but one of the things we got into was. Just the nature, the, even the, the the nature of uh, research, or the things that we even do a paper for school, you know, the, even the nature of how we had to go through that process, work, process already inherently had a certain amount of rigor. You know, you had to go to the library, you had to know the Dewey Decimal System, you had to go around the damn library and find five thousand books, and then you once you compile the books on the table, and you had to go through the books. You had to get a highlighter or a pencil and, and underline all the books, or you had to have $5,000 to do photocopies. If you didn't have that, you had to literally underline each thing and then transcribe it into a notebook, you know, then go through the notes, highlight the notes, and then transcribe, and then think about that and then transcribe that into a paper. So there was all inherently, there was a, a, a you know, a process of work. There was never the 
assumption or even the thought that if you were going to do something that required, um, a, you know, required thinking or putting on your thoughts into a, into a compiled piece of work, that that wasn't going to require a lot of rigor before, right. even getting to the library. Yeah, you know. Sure. Whereas now, that has been redacted. You know, not to say that that is good or bad. But it's definitely a different way of approaching um, distilling information mm-hmm. and processing it for yourself to be able to then codify it into a cogent piece of work or thought. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I do find that when I look at your process, AJ, and and all the years and years of um, compiling books and images in a very analog way. Um, scrapbooks, cutting out shit from magazines. You know how many magazines you have to go through? <laughs> Yo. You know how many piles of books? Yeah. And the images Definitely. you have to go to to make them fucking books? Here's my language. Yeah. You know, so this, that, that is a different way of thinking. When I look at, I remember being on set of When They See Us um, with the King. And I hadn't seen this when we worked on Random Act season two. I mean, season one together. Um, but I remember being on set and Brad, Bradford showed me, uh, it was either a piece of furniture or something that was on the wall and on the back of the thing hanging on the wall was a whole detailed description of whatever the poster was and its context to the time, you know, mm-hmm. to the era, to what was happening during that time and why it belonged in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, so if someone... I'm sure the average person, the actor, the average director, even or, or, or whoever, probably didn't flip over, flip over the thing to look at it. But you did that for yourself, you know. So, you know, I, I guess I'd like to start the conversation. I know that's a heavy one to start with, but just in, under the the context of rigor and why it's important to, if you're going to communicate something, to really unpack it, you know. Uh, extensively before you have a thought. Um, just maybe talk about that a little bit. In regards to art. I did want to say one thing as you were saying that, Sean, and I appreciate that. And yeah, I do do it for me because I think that the vibrations and stories of humanity, those, those very human things are important for us to engage with. And in some senses, everything, how we display ourselves and how we share, express ourselves to the world. So those visual elements are so important to to give the depth and acknowledgement to and understand why they are there and give other people the opportunity to understand if they haven't done the work themselves. But when you were talking about the library, I kept thinking, is most people's process when you were doing a research paper to go blindly into information and then after looking at all this information, concluding something, and at that point you would decide what your paper was? I don't feel like that's what it is. And I want to use that as a metaphor for us in general and our process of of creativity and creation. Because what I think is that most people in college would come up with a theory first. And then you go to the library with the sole purpose of finding evidence to support your theory, which is not, to me, intellectually rigorous. That is, you glancing through a book quickly, excluding all the information that could perhaps negate or give you greater insight and depth and then concentrating on the pieces of which parrot the thing of which you've already thought. And I think for a, for a lot of human beings, you kind of 
jump out of the womb that way. You very early on create this idea of self-perception and then you go out about the world trying to put more evidence of, of the things you, you want to control and feel like are true for yourself. Um, and so I'm always trying to shake that up for myself. I'm conscious that I am also capable of, of falling into that trap. And so I do my best to, to shake those things up, debate with myself, and, and just to kind of articulate this point one more time, but without getting too long-winded, is I remember one of the most effective college courses that I took was a professor that sat us in. He said, I, right now you're gonna write something. Uh, it's gotta be three pages of something you're very passionate about and I need evidence in it. And you have 40 minutes to write this and you will be graded on this, so it must be good. He, uh, we did it, wrote about whatever was passionate to us. And he said, I was uh, lying to you. I'm not gonna grade you on what you just wrote, but you now have your first research paper assignment. It's a 20 page research paper arguing on the opposite of what you just wrote in those four pages. And if you don't convince me in that paper, then you will get a bad grade. And so you had, you had pro-choice people having to write a 20 page anti-abortion paper of which if they didn't give it their all, they receive a bad grade on it. And I, and I love that as an exercise because of course you should be able to truly understand both sides of an argument before you conclude your own. Uh, and if you conclude with righteousness and having observed evidence, then you're also not threatened by, uh, by counter, counter arguments. So, so when we dig into these big things, including Woman King, including this history of which is, which is uh, always through a perspective, it's always through the winners, the people in control, the people with the, the, the parchment paper, the people with the, 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 the drawing pad who are illustrating pre-photography, those people in my film were slavers and colonialists, you know, from, from Europe who were there to oppress and take resources from uh, the people of Dahomey. So that you could take that, you could start at that space and decide that that is what history, that that is gonna be the accurate history to you but if you do that, you're not observing who and why is writing it. You can, you can, and this is the last point, and I'm sorry, because I, I want to, uh, to not go on too long, but uh, you can watch the written materials from uh, the slave, slaving portion in, uh, in, uh, in Dahomey, uh, shift to colonial portion, where the motivation is to access resources and when that motivation shifts, now you're advertising a good trading partner. So your depiction of the Dahomey kingdom, kingdom and the people that occupy it is much more beautiful and benevolent. Now you're motivated to concentrate on how, how good their roads are and how advanced their civilization is and how great their math skills are and all the beauty of, of, of working with these people to trade with them. Prior to that, uh, you were looking to dehumanize them so that you did not take home self-judgment with you as you chained and oppressed people and brought them back to whatever country was was demanding chattel slavery oppression and and hurt so those things are logical if you decide and choose to look at them um, uh, which is fun and exciting and important to me and scene <laughs> um well i'm just gonna go back to the library thing just again for a second uh you know i grew up in libraries because my parents were teachers 
at a small black college in uh, Mississippi. Uh, my next door neighbor, Mrs. Green, was a head librarian. And from pretty early on, she just gave me keys to the library. And oftentimes I would fall asleep in the stacks and my dad would come and get me one, two o'clock in the morning, wake me up, I'd be sleeping in between the stacks. And some of that was definitely powered by, I mean, there was this way growing up in Mississippi, in the Delta in particular, you had a pronounced sense of uh, deprivation for lack of a better, uh-uh, <laughs> a pronounced sense. We can't hear you. I can't hear you. We can't hear you. Okay, now you're coming in like Jimi Hendrix or some all distorted and shit. <laughs> we have to get a translation on that later. <laughs> that's for anybody that doesn't know. That's that's Bradford Young, our, our family and uh, collaborator. <laughs> uh, but he said, uh, he, was, he, said he was bombing up, bombing our, our round table. Okay. He said, hey, he's on my <laughs> Oh, no, um, okay. Let him talk. <laughs> uh, what was I saying? <laughs> but I was saying, oh yeah, this whole library thing, you know. So um, the thing is about in Mississippi, for me, I had a very pronounced sense of not having access to stuff. You know, you just felt isolated, like in a way. Uh, because, you know, in the summers we would visit our cousins in New York or Chicago or whatever. And like everybody else, we had television, which is the first social media. You know what I mean? It's just something that really happens when you start getting these, you know, remote visions of other people's lives, what other people have and things like that. So I was just drawn all the way to, to, to libraries. Like, and not even like it sounds like an intellectual thing, but oftentimes I was just looking at pictures. Sometimes I was reading, you know, it, it, you know, really all depended. And one of the things that I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not nostalgic about these kinds of things in terms of the acquisition of information and stuff like that. But there's a certain aspect of physically moving through stacks and how you come to put your hands on information that does something neurologically. I mean, you know, that information registers in a completely different way than when I you know, I'm just, uh, you know, on the internet or something, just, you know what I mean? Like doing searches and stuff. It's just a different process. Um, plus everything in the, on the internet has already been in a way categorized. It's been put in these sort of boxes already. And yeah, sure, Dewey Decimal System, that's to a certain degree, but, you know, you use the word um, to start it, can you say vibes? And vibes, man, for me, I've discovered more things in libraries purely from vibes than some I was going looking for. I used to literally like go through libraries. I remember when I first got to Howard, that was the most extensive founders library, library I'd ever been in. And I just walked through the library damn near with my eyes closed, pull some off the stacks and see what it is. I mean, sometimes you would be in the section that you liked or you were attracted to, but inside of that section, you could put your hands on almost anything. Some of the things, that I read that had the most profound impacts on me in life were things that I stumbled on. I never forget uh, in Founders Library and stumbling on um, then Leroy Jones's uh, book of essays, Home. And I just flipped it open. And for whatever reason, I'm flipping on you know one page and I'm come, come across the term African retention. Never heard that term before. Never heard the concept before. Blew my mind. I still can see what I was wearing and where I was standing 
when I said African retention. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's really at the very core of so many things that I have pursued over the years, like this whole idea that not only did we have something worth retaining, you know what I mean? There were certain mechanisms in place. So when you start having these, you know, I was so blown away, uh, you know, when I looked at the PDF that the King shared with me with his research, some of his, some of his research, a fraction of his research efforts, you know, it just reminded me that, um, you know, so much of this stuff is about not just the information is there, but how do you dig through all the things that get in the way of getting to the information? You know, how do you have, that's like when I say rigor, or when I hear the word rigor, what that means to me is like, not like a methodological approach or something. It's really about a certain kind of tenacity and understanding that, you know, like you said, initially a king, like you read this person's accounts or something. You know, they say you had to take everything with a grain of salt. Like they have a vested interest in a certain kind of reading. It doesn't mean that they're outright lying. It just means their thing is framed by certain values and certain assumptions and stuff, you know? And the same thing with somebody that's a colonialist. Like, you know, it's the same thing. Like blues music is a kind of perfect example. Like to a certain degree, most of the early blues recordings we wouldn't even have if it weren't for white guys going down there and obsessively saving those things, right? Mm -hmm. Because in some ways, you know, it's like hip hop. Hey, I, especially the black bourgeoisie, of which, I, you know, I'm a product of the black bourgeoisie. But we know that impulse is always to paper over things that we're uncomfortable with. We know the arts, our art forms are relentless, man. They go for the juggler, like in general, in whole. Blues, hip hop, jazz, these things are going for the sort of existential foundations of who we are. So they're gonna be painful things. They're gonna always be in association with those things. So, you know, a lot of times if we left to our impulses, we wanna pave over or destroy those things, you know? So it takes rigor, intensity, commitment to get around all of these boundaries, these things, the hurdles that are put in place of getting at the real shit. Cause at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about, getting at some real shit, you know? So as, you know, just as a, to start. I, lo I love that. I love that. And one thing, just one little thing on that is, is that I want to say kind of not just to you guys, but anybody who may be listening, that a photograph is also through a lens, like quite literally. So it's not necessarily what is in front of the camera. That may be the truth, but it's what you're pointing the camera at. So even when we get to our kingdom and we're in the early 1900s, post the French, French Dahomey War, and so the kingdom is decimated to some extent, but the photographs you're getting are posed. This is, this is now, you know, a new device to the world of which takes lots of light and has to be controlled. So everything that you're seeing is, is manipulated and set up to support, again, to support whatever agenda. So you're looking through the lens of here, here, here is my theory. I'm going to write my paper, but I'm going to go and just collect the data that supports whatever that theory is, including, including photographs. And it's not always so malicious or anything. Every ray of illumination casts a corresponding shadow. You have to understand that. You cast a ray of illumination, a shadow is made somewhere. So rigor is about being able to deal with where the illumination is happening, but understanding that the backside of that a shadow is cast. And you got to move around the corner to get to that, you know? So it's a, you know, it's a lifelong um, 
uh, practice. It's a lifelong endeavor to understand that you always start off with the vantage, but you got to know how to shift. You got to shift. You got to shift around your own assumptions, around other people's assumptions. You're trying to, you know, I used to like to say like, truth is always prismatic, meaning like the truth of a thing is somewhere in between my vantage, your vantage, and somebody else's vantage. It's like the Venn diagram of all those vantages is the actual truth of the thing. And so, you know, if you're a practitioner in whatever way that it's about trying to get at something, you got to learn how to take your advantage as a given, but also to shift around. You know, you got to have multiple. I mean, that was what was so revolutionary in a way about, you know, the implications of like when African art comes into the context of Western art practice, because we know vanishing point perspective and all these kinds of things are at the very center of Western art, optical visualization of the world, how the world was ordered. It's an extension of the philosophy that said, you know, the sun revolved around the earth. You know, it's a very egocentric idea of understanding how the world is ordered. And when they see these African artifacts, because on these kind of days, and I've, you know, I've said this a million times, but one of the first things that they realize is like, this is an artifact that's been looked at from multiple vantages. That was a radical break from Western, how the Western psyche comprehends and apprehends the world, for better or for worse. And so, you know, I think like, because of those guys, they were geniuses. They understood the formal implications of that, but they didn't necessarily always understand the philosophical implications, you know. So it behooves us to actually, you know, try to, you know, like I like to say, we're the ill sons and daughters of the West. You know, like we are products of the West. We're the illegitimate products of the West. We we got both of this shits going on and we're constantly, so much of what we do, it's not necessarily trying to choose one or the other or even trying to reconcile, but just to contend. You know what I mean? With the duality or the complexity of how we understand and apprehend the world. I like the art thought, and I'm curious what you, what you, your thoughts on this. So- I want, Wait, let me ask a quick question, Akeem, before you go. No problem. I want, to lead, I want to try to guide this conversation a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but, because I think it's something interesting that you mentioned, AJ, that ties right into Akeem and my experience of debating and, you know, me get down, me, Akeen, and Bradford, and a bunch of people can go for hours. Yeah. You know what I mean? And one of the things but that's that how I, we do. Akeen, like, honestly, yeah. hold up yeah. for a second. That's one, how of the things that, <laughs> one thing that Akeen obsesses about that I noticed is like how human beings um, intersect with patterns, you know, and how that also crosses with, with culture and, 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 um, you know, in different societies and that people, people are prim, prim, primarily a manifestation of um, history, culture, and patterns in some ways. And I, I realize, and maybe I, I'm probably mis, misquoting you, Akeem, but I know that's something, you, math is always, math, patterns, how you think about things logically is always a part of your kind of um, understand uh, the complexity of human behavior or the, or the simplicity of human behavior, right? And one of the things that, you brought up AJ that we've talked about before is this, um, you know, your use of kind of Venn, the Venn diagram logic, you know, how these concentric circles, mm -hmm. you know, how logical, how things intersect logically mm -hmm. uh, over patterns, mm -hmm. vast patterns of, of, of things. So, you know, I know you're going to ask, you have a question to ask Akeem, but I'd like to just explore both of your interest in sort of mathematics this this thing this thing around patterns and culture and history and how that 
you know, intersects with your work and how you think about your work. I think uh, to, to that point, and I think I still work in the previous point, but uh, one thing I like to say is our perception of science is a study of patterns. So it's, it's patterns. And, and in that sense, it should, should always feel objective. But again, there is choice in what you choose to observe. So when scientists discuss with each other, AJ may put a scientific paper out into the world and I'm gonna be like, sure, that makes sense, but you didn't, you didn't consider where people are born and what their environment, how that may affect them. And I think that if you were to weigh and evaluate that, then it would change that, the outcome of and, and your summation. So, so the process should feel objective and then the subjectivity comes in and what deserves questioning is what, what you have looked at. And our perception of who the scientist is though, is the white man in the smock with fluorescent lights in the basement with beakers and vials. It's not the elder in the village who is sitting and watching when the bees come and when the bees leave and is watching what the rabbit eats when it's sick to its stomach and how it releases the stuff out of its stomach that is watching when the migratory patterns adjust with the elephant so they can access a fruit that only blossoms in whatever to, you know, biannually and it skips a year because of weather. That that is also the study of patterns and that we have this Western perspective where the only way in which something can be valid is if my guys took it down into the lab with their beakers and came back and, and gave the pharmaceutical company stamp of approval. And, and uh, not to go too down, far down the rabbit hole, but part of what back in the, the early civilization days, uh, big civilizations that you're getting out of uh, uh, in, uh, Egypt and Greece and all of the big uh, uh, early civilizations, when you would conquer each other, you'd take their knowledge. You'd go access it. That's part of the spoils of the war. It's like Africans are working on science and all this beautiful stuff. The Persians have advanced mathematics. And as people conquer, they start to share these things. The alphabet gets introduced, all of this stuff. And the spoil of war is all this knowledge that continents of people had over hundreds and thousands of years accumulated and you'd access it. And then somehow through the colonial era and, and, and you know, my knowledge of this is only superficial, but at some point there's a shift and it's, it's burn the books. Nothing you have is valuable to us. We're gonna go to your African country and we're gonna assume that you've never done anything greater than, than, than our the ship of war that we should have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think uh, what I did wanna say before though, and I think it does relate is, is, is purpose. So I think of cultural appropriation as taking something of which has purpose to a people and taking the thing, but stripping it of its purpose. Um, so part of what I'm doing when I write on the back of those pictures is I am signing purpose. I'm putting the story in. When someone, Sean, when you're speaking to someone, they ask you about your ring, where'd you get that ring? You go straight into the story because more important than the aesthetics of that ring is the, the story that it means to Sean Peters. And that's the thing that I should, that's the touchstone of value that we assign to this thing. So every mask in, in, in Benin, in these areas of Africa has spiritual purpose. And it's not an individual who says, I'm Kim McKenzie, I made this mask, look how valuable I am as the artist. It is something channeled me. You might not even know who made the mask. The mask appears it gets pushed into 
to use for ritual and spirituality, it never hangs on your wall as a as as a conquest of here is the thing that I now possess. It is uh, it is only valuable through through purpose. So I do believe that you know that for me that 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 is a, a valuable search to to try to redefine all the things that you think you just like, but question, why do I like that? What is the purpose of that like? What is the relationship? And for some people, it may just be because people I like value, but it's good to know that about yourself, that you don't like it or dislike it, but your friends that you like or your community like it, so, so you like it. Um, on a broader scale though, that, that becomes, we talked about yesterday, Sean, but like the club of advertising where, where we are so far away from knowing the things that we truly, truly value and why, and the ritual behind those possessions of ours that they become, they become valueless. So, so rather than appro appropriate things, I try my best to understand them uh, and grow connection with them and be available to listen and hear and participate in the people of which still have deep connection with, with the traditions that they may represent. Uh, and that can be from a film like When They See Us, when we're talking about New York, or that can be all the way back to 1823 Dahomey, when we're talking about the people of Abomey. I mean, the math thing for me, I mean, this sort of just echoes what Akeem is saying um, and what he said, you know, what I said earlier about retention. That's why that, that word had such resonance for me, because really what we're talking about is continuity. You know, we're talking about continuity. Uh, when you say repetition, you're talking about continuity. You know what I mean? Like the thing repeated itself. It had a shape, it had a form, it had a frequency, it had an amplitude, and that continued or not, or it didn't. And if it didn't, why didn't it? Or why does it? Or why? how can it? All these kinds of questions. So it seems to me particularly like, you know, we're talking about, I mean, there's a general conversation, but, we, you know, in particularly in the medium of cinema, I mean, so much cinema at core is about continuity, you know? Like you take a photo of something, Okay, you don't know what's right outside of the frame. You don't know what happened a second after that moment that you took the photo. But cinema, because it's a sequence of images, right, really is about continuity on a fundamental level. Like I got into this thing recently with someone. We were arguing. Uh, we were trying to put in a uh, application, and we were arguing about the use of certain terms. And they wanted to use video because they said that was a term that the engineers were familiar with and i said well why don't we just say motion pictures and they would say well that's periodized you know what I mean? because the people associate with, with movies but i was saying in a fundamental level what we're talking about whether it's like cinema you know like celluloid or a digital image or a video image, which is not a digital image at all, it's an electronic image. What we're really talking about is one picture followed by another still image, followed by another still image. That is primarily what we're talking about. And how when you string those images together, even if you just have them in the flip book, you know what I mean? You don't even need just a flip book. You get the impression of motion. 
that impression of motion is built around continuity, the continuity of those forms in a space against the backdrop, those kinds of things. And so I like, I think there's a way, like when you talk about cinema as a metaphor, like we really are talking about interrogations of continuity, social continuity, spiritual continuity, political continuity, all these kinds of things. So that's why like, I think, you know, like when I think of like the art forms where black Americans in particular, or black people in the Americas, let's say, African peoples in the Americas have excelled, you know, they have been forms that have been largely immaterial. I mean, there's been an in, you know, immaterial dimension that has to do with being you know, on slave ships and, you know, you can't bring architecture with you, but you can bring your song with you. You can bring your dance. Those are the things you wear on your nervous systems. You know what I mean? That's a kind of continuity. And that's a kind of ability to be able to transport those things. But when you get into this space of material expressivity, see cinema, one of the things I love about cinema as a form is this on the crux of those things. Because on one hand, it's just light, right? But it's light that's dependent on having moved material forms around in front of that light. You know, when you capture it, this is why, like, you know, like in the olden days before everything was digital and you could see it immediately after you said it, you know, after you shot something and you had a cinematographer. Like when I grew up, the cinematography thing was like, it was a big deal because you didn't know if you got anything. Like literally, you can shoot the whole day and know if you got, you didn't know if you got anything. It was always kind of magical when you saw it because it was always a question. If you So the cinematography thing had to do with like, if this shit goes wrong, we know whose head to cut off on a certain level. It was high stakes. It's not like high stakes now because you point a camera at something, you can look at it two seconds later, right? The thing about what's difficult about it is moving things around. You know, like, so in King, if you're reconstructing a Bomi or something like that, that's, that's a massive undertaking of coordinating people's life forces and their resources and things to reconstruct a thing that no longer exists, doesn't exist in the form that we want to see it in. That's a massive undertaking. And when I point a camera at it, you know, we want to know we got it because once we tear it down and move on to the next thing, it ain't simple. It's not as simple as snapping your fingers and coming back to it. It just doesn't work like that. So these, these mediums are mediums where I think as Black people, we know they're mediums that we have come to slowly because of the material stakes that are you know, in play. Um, so hence, we get in these spaces, and I know it's something that I'm obsessed with as well. You know, I think when it comes to the whole idea of rendering Black life, like there's one hand, like people talk a lot of now about black futures, like, you know, there's black people in the future. You see, that's a brilliant billboard that said black people exist in the future and shit like that. But we know so much of our whole thing is how do we tell the story? How do we tell like the ontological frame of who we are? How do we tell how we got here with accuracy, particularly as you were saying earlier, King, we know all these people have vested interests in those things that exist. I always remember like, Toni Morrison was talking about when she was doing research on, um, I think it was the Song of Solomon and it had these, you know, slavery stuff in it. And she was trying to find these artifacts that had been made, you know, the bits to put in people's mouths, cages over people's heads. You see drawings of them and things. And she was saying it was like in the 60s and 70s when she was starting to research this thing, it was impossible to find the artifacts because post-slavery, they buried all these things. They literally buried these things in America, even though there were large 
corporations, many of the largest corporations now, if you track back past a certain point, you would see at one point where they made their living was making slave enslavement implements, right? She said she had to go to Brazil to find actual artifacts of these things that she had read. read. You know, there were accounts of the things, but no physical actual things. She wanted to put her hands on these things, put these things in her mouth so she could see what it felt like to wear these things. So, so much of the challenge of us rendering our stories so many of our stories are in the past because our past is what's at stake. That's what's missing. When we say a black black person as opposed to an African person, what you're talking about is a certain relationship to continuity. That's what you're talking about. When you're in Africa, you could be oppressed by colonialism or neocolonialism or anything, but basically you still have, you're surrounded by your continuity. You're surrounded by friends and family. They have a certain relationship to the land, to the geography, all that kind of stuff. When you talk about black people, African people in the Americas, what you're talking about is a break with that. Gaps, gaps, gaps. And that gap is what's critical. So that's why these questions of rigor, philosophies of these things, ethos of these things, how to get at the real thing, is why it's critical because that's what's at stake for us. How do we how do we take a continuity that's broken and reweave it, weave it together? How do we get, you know, how do we render these things? Like a big challenge to me always, I think of, you know, it's like, how do we render slavery, let's say, for example? Because we don't got no pictures of it. We don't have any pictures of slavery. And a picture, as we say, a picture even is limited, but we don't have any pictures of it. Well, we have our accounts of it. We don't know how people moved around on the plantation. We don't. We don't because we don't got no movies of it. We don't have any videos of it. We don't know if a person had to ask permission, if they had a hand sign that said it was all right for them, if they had to pee and they're in the cotton field. You know, how did that go? Did the person just have to pee there? Or did they have to hold it or did they have a hand sign where they could go off? And, you know, we don't know. It's so many things we don't know. So the question becomes, what are our strategies? What kinds of strategies do we have? to accurately, to the best of our ability, render these, these things, what it looked like, what it felt like, you know what I mean? How, how, how we existed inside of it, how it informed, how we moved, all these kinds of questions are like critical questions. And that's the challenge, it seems to me. It's a challenge. That is a challenge. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Sean. Well, I just wanted to say, just in response to that, and I'd like you guys to speak on this. One of the things that I want to go back to your work, Akeem, and um, um, now I forgot the name of the series, but it's the, the We Deliverer, um, uh, High Maintenance. So you're, one of your things, one of the, the, your episodes in High Maintenance that I love the most is the elder man who um, obviously has dementia and the dealer comes in and he, with mistakes, mistaken to either his son or his grandson, I can't remember. Um, but one of the things about the world that you created in that apartment, I remember, I watched it twice, and one of the things I just remember was how much residue was in that space and how much I, I could smell it. You know, I got an uh, olfactory response from the visual of that of that space, you know, um, you know, aided by the lighting also, but aided and aided by sound design. But, but mainly what you did in terms of the layering 
of this of the all this implicit information. And you know, one of the things they talk about in technology, well, especially with when you're dealing with um, CGI and you're dealing with you know potentially AI um, visualization. One of the things they, they talk about obviously is this notion of the uncanny valley, right? And especially when when you're looking at someone's eyes and body movement and things like that, and you know they talk about the window, the eyes of the window to the soul, and, and and why is that? And that's because human beings have been looking at each other's eyes and communicating um, non-verbally for on record over two hundred fifty thousand years, and that is epigenetically, you know, that understanding of how to read someone's emotions through their face, through their eyes, you know, is, is something that we know. It's not a matter of information. There's difference between facts and data and is and knowing, right? And so one of the things I I I see, you know, even when I look at, you know, sort of Venn diagram exercise as a logical exercise, maybe in a in a in a in a piece like Apex, right? That's part of that is coming up with these these logical um, you know, these sort of relationships between these images. A part of that is also knowing, mm-hmm. you know, knowing this alien response is is connecting to Miles Davis, you know, or you know, this understanding of of sort of black expressivity as something alien mm-hmm. to the West, you know. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to talk about sort of why in both of your work there's this sort of this this sense of really trying to drill it down to the residue to find the truth in something. And maybe the truth, not an objective truth in terms of of a factual thing, but in this sense of knowing um, something. I'd like to go down that that road again. I think uh, they, they, yeah, some of that stuff you can just see. We were talking about this a little bit yesterday, Sean. It's like, I was reading the script and they referenced jumping over, jumping over the stick, jumping over the broom post-marriage and then I, I highlighted that portion because I, I was like well what is that that tradition and where does it come from and my hunch was that it came from Western Africa and sure enough yeah that, that came from Western Africa people at certain point started to distance themselves from some of those roots because identifying as that um, made it harder to function in American society post-slavery um, but they continue to exist. There's so much overlap between African-American culture and Western African culture that that even through all of the years of, of oppression still kept kept its its hold and grasp. You know, I was looking at a picture from the 1970s like South Carolina Carolina and it was a downtown market. There's two women in the back uh, you know carrying tons of groceries and whatever it had, or laundry or something on their head. And, and it felt so African to me. Then I started to question why when we see movies that are set in, in, in the times of enslaved people in America, that oftentimes I don't feel like I'm seeing as strong of a connection with Africa as, as you would imagine there would have been. Uh, Cause I, I do feel like we, we continue to feel those vibrations. And you know, it's simple things from the musicality to the drum to to things that um, that we know where they came from, and we know that have they not disappeared, but they've strengthened. Um, 
I like, this is a, a weird theory that I'll just throw out there. You know, I was, when I was in South Africa, we were listening to, you know, Khoisan and they have this beautiful click language that almost at points sounds like beatboxing. And I love the thought that, that this is a rhythm of which is spoken and that the musicality of it makes music, the feeling of music, its own language. And then I started to attach the thought of language to, to the drum and how starved people were for the drum. It's like when you lose the drum in Europe and the drum gets reintroduced in the Americas, it spreads like wildfire. You know, now every major music form has this rhythm that is reintroduced, that was lost and then reintroduced. And I wondered if that is because these, these, these old patterns are early language of which we starve and miss them when, when we don't have access to them. But those are fun thoughts, true or not, it doesn't matter. It's exciting to feel and think about those things, uh, but they come to mind because I do think in all things, there is the string of which you pull that takes you to the place in which it originated only to find 10 more strings of which you pull and take you to other places. And if every human being pulled their strings, we all end up in the same place. The first buildings in Rome were made of earthen material and thatch. You know, the, the traditions of which you see still intact in some places of Africa are not just the traditions of Black Africans. Those are the traditions of human beings, whether you come from the coldest places or the hottest places. At some point, our people came from a village of tradition and spirituality and interconnectedness and earthen materials and sustainability. Um, so I love, I love the thought of that, that web of connection. Yeah, it's like one of the things that comes to mind to me just listening to your keen is this whole question of, which I'm constantly asking myself is how to look, how do we look at things, you know, as a practice, as a, yeah, as a practice, you know, what's our ethos of looking at things and how do we understand the nature of, what's getting in the way of us seeing things. Like I like to think like one of the things about the black community, like historically, classically, we're the community of keeping it real. Like in other words, we can lie to other people, but we don't lie to ourselves. Classically, I'm not so sure now anymore, but classically we don't lie to ourselves. We know like there's a difference between what a person says and what a person means. We don't collapse to two things, right? We know like, being able to distinguish the difference between what's said and what's meant was life or death for us. It just, it's not like just a game. It's life or death for us. So we've always been, you know, when people say things like keeping it real and shit like that, that's really what we're sort of alluding to is like, are we seeing it as it is? Not as we want it to be, not as we dream it could be, are we seeing it as it is? And so, you know, that requires a certain, it requires, like I said, an ethos or a philosophy and stuff. And it also requires a kind of understanding of all the things that get in the way of that. I love this thing that Cornel West says. He said, there's certain things you cannot not know as a Black American. Mm. I thought about that for years. Things you cannot not know as a Black American. Mm. It took me 20 years before I came to say, we figured out how to not not know what we cannot know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's strategies of a delusion that we've developed to account for this keeping it real thing, because it's painful 
to look at the reality. You know, you have to be, it's not something for the weak hearted, you know, it's something that requires you to be unflinching in a way. Like I love to tell this story. Um, this brother told me when I was at Howard. So this is, you know, in the early 80, maybe 80, 81. If I remember correctly, he was an Angolan filmmaker. He was in town. He came to screen a film. You may have heard, I may have told you the story before, Sean. He came in town. He showed this film. It was a, it was a beautiful film. I can't remember the name of the film, uh, but it had a lot of myth, myth and folk tales and things like that in it. And it had a sort of these griots in it. And I remember afterwards, I was having this conversation with him. And he said, you know where griots come from? You know what a griot? You know where a griot? I said, yeah, I know what a griot is. He says, you know where they come from? And I was like, you mean like what country? He said, no. Do you know how griots came into being? And I said, uh, maybe not so much. He said, let me tell you this story. I love this story. I never forgot it. He said, this is where griots come from. He says, there was two brothers and they were taking, you know, an epic odyssey, like all folk tales have these epic odysseys, Iliad and, you know, and Odyssey and things like that. They took this epic journey, these two brothers, and they went and had all these adventures and stuff. And then years and years later, they're coming to the end of their cycle of adventures and they're starting to come back home. They're starting to get back to where they started. And they're on the road. They've been on the road all this time. A lot of experiences, a lot of adventures, a lot of insights, a lot of hardships. They get to a certain point. And uh, one of the brothers realizes he's too weak to make the final part of the journey. He, he said, I'm not going to make it home. I'm too weak. I'm going to die on the road. But he doesn't want to endanger his brother. So what he tells his brother is like, yo, I'm going to just take a rest here. You keep going. I'm going to take a little nap and I'm going to catch up with you later. And the brother said, hmm, okay, cool. I'll do that. I'll keep moving. So the one brother kept walking. The other brother laid on the road to die. He laid on the road to die. After a certain amount of time, when the brother who had proceeded didn't see his brother catching up with him because he was going half speed, you know, he said, let me go back and check on him. He came back and check on him. He saw him laying on the side of the road. And he realized, oh, he knew immediately what was happening. That his brother had gotten too weak. He was going to die. So what he did is took his knife cut his own calf off, made a fire, cooked his own calf, woke his brother up and said, yo, man, I found some food. Why don't you eat this so you can get your strength back up and we can make it home? His brother ate the food, not knowing what it was, got his strength back. They got up together and they made it back home. So they say when they got home, people were so happy to see them, they cheered because they hadn't seen them in you know decades or whatever, right? And then they saw one of the brothers bleeding on the leg. And then the way that people know these things and miss, they knew immediately what had happened. That homeboy had eaten the flesh of his brother, right? So they ran away screaming, like, because he was a ghoul, right? When the brother who had eaten his brother's flesh looked and saw it, he understood what had happened. He says, what he said was, from this point onwards, I and my sons and daughters will sing the praises of you and your sons and your daughters. And their sons and their daughters will sing the praises of their sons and their sons. He said, that's where the first griots came from, right? He said, so if a griot dies, they don't bury a griot with everybody else. Even though griots are powerful entities in these communities because they're the retainers of history and continuity, use that word again. They're the retainers of continuity. But when they die, they don't bury them with everybody else. They put them in a hollow tree and let the maggots eat them. 
He said, you know why? He said, because griots feed on the flesh of the people. Mm. They feed on the flesh of the people. And he said, the reason I tell you this story is because number one, you got to get straight with your calling. He said, you probably have had this experience and I couldn't do nothing but laugh when he said it. All your life, the people you love and grew up around looked at you funny. Look, I told this story one time. I remember one time my brother was under me. He caught on fire. We were messing around. My man is on fire. And I, as my brother, I grabbed him to try to put him out, but I was putting him out like this. I was looking at it like, damn, this shit is interesting. I ain't never seen nobody on fire. <laughs> my brother, I was telling somebody else, so my brother cracked up laughing because he said, I remember this. I remember being on fire and having you kind of shake me, but shake me in a way where it was very clear you were studying me on fire. Now, that's a griot impulse. Griots are people who are in the shit. The shit is hitting the fan. It's hitting the fan with everybody, but we're the ones who take note. We bear mm -hmm. witness. It makes us a little strange. It makes us, you know what I mean? We just don't stand in situations the way, I don't like to say common folks, uncommon folks stand in situations. We're specialists. We're specialists. He said, you got to get straight with who you are so that you can do what you were put here to do. It may mean you're going to be a little alienated. It may mean they're going to bury you with the maggots, but that's your function, right? So part of that is being able to look at things in an unflinching way. Like I know I've trained myself to not recoil from things that are disturbing, which is just human nature, but to push in on things that are disturbing. That's a very valuable skill in the context where we know our continuity has been erased. You know what I mean? Because looking at those voids is painful. Not everybody can do it. We have to, we, you know, we have to know not only how to do it, but why we're doing it so we can maintain and refine our practice. So that was a little bit much, but no, I love that. That's beautiful. That was like that was very clarifying for me. Yeah. I was like, damn, I, I'm like, damn, that's exactly correct. <laughs> No, it's real. It was like I once That's I correct. like I said I heard it, it just made me it made me comfortable with a certain aspect of myself that I never could understand, you know, why I felt slightly alienated from the people I love. And I feel total solidarity with them, but there's difference. There's difference, That's you right. know. There's difference. You know, I want to piggyback on that for you and the king because you know, I have this. Things that the thing that I have an issue, not issue with, but the thing I've been working on myself as a cinematographer is this notion that everything has to be, you know, this notion now in cinematography is that everything's beautiful, man. You know, everything had a perfect key light, everything's ready for Instagram, everything's either a certain style that a particular cinematographer everybody admires, and everybody everybody does that. You know what I mean? But no one, I mean, everything, I mean, you know, if I, if you were doing a movie about a, a crack addict, you know, that live in a carriage house in the back of a town home in Baltimore, that shit ain't gonna be beautiful. The the, the way that's gotta feel, the way the, the uh, memory, collective memory of what that has to feel like is gonna be so ugly and so many beautiful, but the but the details and the residue, the lighting, that can't be 
you know, quote unquote, perfect and beautiful. So where where is the bravery, but also not just the bravery, but the curiosity and the wonderment of the shadow that's cast by the light, that thing that is ugly, you know, as artists, you know, how, how brave and how far are we ready to go to, to, uh, to, 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 to explore that in, 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 the, in the medium, uh, uh, let's say of cinema that we, or images that we work in. I, I love that. I wanna go back to, to AJ real quick, just, just to say one thing I kept thinking of as, as you, were, you were telling us that story was, uh, was have you ever injured yourself bad? Like I've had moments where there's like blood squirting out of the side of my leg. And my reaction is I start laughing. I start laughing because it's painful, but it is, it's almost like you're overstimulated. It's like you're observing so much. It's almost comically painful. Like this, I'm feeling so much pain right now. That <laughs> the sensation of it is almost is almost fascinating. You don't want it, but there's this overwhelming sense of observation that is going hand in hand with the fact that you're also feeling the suffering. So to observe your own suffering is almost to, to be overwhelmed by an experience of which it's so, so dramatic that there is this stimulating observation of it too, that, that like, I remember having this wisdom teeth pulled and they're cracking it and you, you can feel this grinding sensation in your skull and the vibration of it is bouncing through your head. It almost makes you aware, hyper aware of, of your humanity in a way that is, is, is fascinating. I would never want to get my wisdom teeth pulled again, but there's also something fascinating about it. I did want to back up too to another thing is, is pour out a little liquor. I remember I was with the, the voodoo king of uh, the head of the spiritual leader in Wida, uh, a place on the coast of Benin. And I had gone to meet them and, uh, and spend some time with them and, and speak with them. And, uh, they were very patient. There's, we have this Western rush. I have to fill that space. I have to have the next beautiful thought ready to go before you're even done answering the question I just asked. And I felt like they were looking at this vibration of mine. And I think of myself as mellow, but not in comparison to them and thinking and really entertained by watching that and a little quizzical about it. Like it just kept staring at me. And you'd ask a question and just be a long, patient pause and thoughtfulness. And then the answer I would get would be relatively short. But in the meantime, you know, they're watching me squirm. Did he understand? Does he, did I ask this silly question? Blah, blah. And I am, the noise of my head is it's so active that they can see it on, on my face. And I felt exposed in a way. And I felt it, through observing it that I could also have the ability to release it. But one of the things I was saying to them that they did not feel interested in this at all, but they were, we were doing a, a little spiritual piece where we were, and part of that is you pour liquor out to the deceased ancestors. And I was like, oh, that's a tradition that we carry to this day as African-Americans, we pour out a little liquor, liquor to the deceased ancestors. And, and they're like, oh, we don't care. <laughs> that's not I was like okay I found it fascinating but you well, know <laughs> but I mean look 
one of the things I also, another thing I like recently, like I had these periods in my life where I almost feel like if I was to have a memoir, I would have, you know, it's the title for that period in my life. Like that's the title of this chapter. And I've definitely been on this thing the last five years. I sort of said this in my head once, like maybe about five or six years ago. I was like, we got to mind the catastrophe. Mm -hmm. We got to mind this catastrophe, meaning, you know, nobody would like rationally choose to have the experiences that we've had. Mm -hmm. But having had those experiences and knowing how those experiences have shaped who we are, you know, our particular acute understandings or vibes or feelings about things like you know it's like we gotta mind this shit it's like a lot of people have died for this for us to be here there's a lot of people who died to get us here right so we have to mind this shit we gotta understand like the key not just for black people but for like just human beings there's certain things we have experienced and it, it behooves us to actually mine these things appropriately so we can show what can be made of these things. And I don't mean like any, any horrible thing can be recuperated, but I'm just saying, you know, when you talk to King about, you know, pulling your tooth out, like everybody knows like black life is exhilarating. This shit is scary and frightening and all that shit too, but this shit is exhilarating. It's exhilarating, you know? And so the thing is like how, I mean, blues is the perfect example of that. You know, it's all about, you know, like they would say, when I was a kid in Mississippi, I was like, don't play no blue for me. That shit is about suffering. That's how, you know, that's how I thought about it. And we know that Black people developed an aversion to blues as a form in the 60s. Like, we want to hear soul music. We want to hear music that was about uplifting, you know, keeping it on, keeping it going and stuff. But there's something about blues that on, like, it's like existential music. You know, it's music is deep. Like a lot of times, like even like with Love is a Message, man, I had so many funny experiences. Like I remember this politician, like Gavin brought this politician up to the gallery one time. He had seen Love is a Message. He was like, we got to mobilize around this and do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, and I don't mean this to like, I don't mean to cast any kind of aspersions on like activism. That's important. It's like critical that we know how to be actors. But I was like, it's not really what I do. Like the uplift thing is dope and some people do it, but I'm not an uplift person. I have never been. I'm an undertaker. You know, I've said this before. I, I definitely am attracted to the shadows. I'm attracted to like I can see what's above ground, but I'm attracted to what's below ground. You know, I just have always been like that. It's why the grill thing was important for me to hear that because it made me get comfortable with that. It made me get comfortable with it so I can do what I was put here to do, you know, effectively, as opposed to just being at war with myself all the time. I think like in the last 10 to 15 years of my life, it's been a real coming to terms with like, just being on this earth and like, why are you here? What are, you know, what are the defining experiences? And like, how do you actually make something out of it? Because, you know, m most of us can't control our circumstances. You can't control your circumstances. Then so often it's like, I make this joke sometime. I said, we want to like, and this is like one of the superpowers of black people. We can turn a deficit into an asset. Or like, I like to joke sometimes a deaf asset. You know, I mean, we know how to turn something that's a downside of some shit into some upside of shit, but that's just mining the catastrophe again. So, like, 
I know, like, when I look at the work that you did, you know, a king on the woman king, you know, I, I think we had a conversation once before because Benin is my favorite place on the continent. I told you this. Benin is my favorite place on the continent. I'm attracted to that place. It is like the Vatican of Udun in the world, you know, but it's a heavy place. It's not all positive. And The Woman King, I love the movie. I love the movie as a movie experience. I love the craft. I love Viola Davis. I love, you know, the heroic nature of it. But Benin was a way more complicated place than that movie. You know, it's, you know, Abome. I, I remember the first time I went to Abome, I was like, oh, Miles Davis is from here. You know what I mean? Oh, he is from here. This is where he is from. Because it had that beauty and that introspectiveness, but it had that darkness too. Mm-hmm. It had that darkness. So what I'm interested in, Akeen, and this is one of the main things I thought, how do you, how do you manage that? Because I know you're going in so hardcore. I heard some, I don't know if I can share this, I'm going to share it anyway, and you guys can represent me afterwards. <laughs> I heard someone saying, you took pictures on the set of Woman's Kid. You were taking your own pictures and stuff. And somebody was looking at those pictures and looking at the movie, and it was two different movies. Like the way you your photos rendered same sets, same actors and everything, but it was like a different movie. And so I'm interested in that. Like a great example, I would put Curtis Mayfield. Okay, they asked him to do the soundtrack for Superfly. You know, it's a film valorizing a pusher, like straight up. And Curtis Mayfield was like, hmm. He makes a record that far outlived the movie. Ain't nobody looking at Superfly now, but everybody's listening to the record. Fred is dead, you know, Pusha Man. All these incredible songs. It's like the soundtrack is almost an auto-critique of the movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested in your ethos, because I know you're a person who has some very highly developed ethics around this stuff. Like that can even be at odds with your director or your producer or your scriptwriter. How do you manage? What is your thinking around managing your pursuit of truth and maybe how it may align or not align with the project that you're operating inside? I, I, I am going to answer that. I have to that. put you on the spot. <laughs> That's fine. I, I'm going to answer that. And thank you, brother. Thank you. Uh, uh, but I want to start with observing some of the controversy about the Bullock King and rebutting it. Because for all the people that had their feathers ruffled and wanted to, to feel disappointed that in the movie that is about slavery, that is about for the first time maybe being depicted in the West, Africa's participation in slavery, that is about a slave kingdom. And your response to that is, damn, I wish there was more slavery in it. What I felt like was missing was more slavery. First of all, that's an interesting reaction. Second of all, do you also do that when you watch the films of Rome that don't depict slavery at all, even though that was 50% of the population, or the films about Greece, or the films about Portugal, or Dutch? Did you know that the Dutch built all of the massive slave castles throughout Africa? Every, when you see George Washington, I, I was reading that he didn't have wooden teeth, he had a slave's teeth in his mouth. Have you seen that? in your film. So I thought it was very interesting to watch people decide that they they care about 
access to some some mysterious version of their truth that they felt like was lacking, uh, and that that centers around this particular film and is not extended to Avatar that is about colonialists coming and taking over the bodies of the indigenous people. In the new one, there seems to be Mari people in it. I'm like, Mari people are on earth. Confusing things of which I'm not targeting that film. I'm just saying if, yeah. if, if what it is we want to do is question, there are so many right things worth investigating. I would say, <laughs> but I would say, uh, one look, I'll break in one second. Woman King was five stars. I don't want it to be, be mistaken that I was critiqued. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed myself in yes. Woman King. I literally yeah. wrote Viola Davis. I found her number from somebody and sent her a text. She never responded, but I was like, yo, sis, props. You really threw down in that one, you know. But anyway, I just I love that. Okay. Oh, and I would, I'm not kidding you, you with that, with what I just yeah. said. Is that is the kind of a bigger conversation which yeah yeah it's a real conversation and my hope with this was what my hope with the film always was was wow what a great starting point what a great introduction how many people are going to inspire to go dig more and go visit the kingdom go to abomi go meet these people learn a little bit more about voodoo uh how great would that be but unfortunately for a lot of the camps where they love it or felt as if that's not they want to see a different type of film around slavery that the thing of which I thought would be, was the thing of which was most valuable to me, which was opening up a door and a window into exploration, a deeper understanding of the people and the culture did not manifest in the way that I, I would have liked. With that said, AJ, the thing I, things that I am most proud of is traditions that are baked into the film of which nobody questions. So nobody is saying, I can't believe the head of the military, Viola Davis, sleeping on the floor, you know. Nobody is saying, is, is, why don't they have shoes on? You know, what I know is that some of the feet I saw in Benin, people that have never worn shoes, they look more comfortable than Nikes. The, the protection on the bottom of their feet naturally mean that they're not getting hurt by the small stones underneath their feet. They, their feet have a natural protection of which ours would have too if we, took off these big corporations' things that they tell us we need. The softness of your bed is, causes atrophy in your back. The harder bed is better for your back. The upright chair is worse for your body than the short stool or sitting on the floor. The traditions of which we bake into that, that I was a broken record and welcomed by Gina. You know, she, want, she, she was excited and engaged in that enthusiasm for this history, but that was very important to me, is to not have, have those things ring, ring so true that, that there is no spectacle of conversation around that. I actually think that that is a significant breakthrough in people's understanding, that they just go, oh, there's a different way of being in that, I accept that. Now, the other things of which people want to talk about, I don't agree with all of them, but, but whatever. I, I am so happy that, that we are able to create uh, layers of truth that, that that meshed so well with itself that nothing was anomalous and and forced a, a critique or or or, right. or or even through I guess also maybe I should describe that as the Western gaze right those things didn't get cycled through the Western gaze and get told back to them that they're wrong which is what often happened right uh, so things I love about that 
too, is, and documents I think you would love, AJ, is you know, the palm plantation that we see just briefly. But you can freeze frame that and you can see every single step of, of how they refine palm oil from boiling it and mashing it with your feet to, to reboiling, taking the husks off and all the things that that whole process I created a step-by-step how-to because how else are you going to make it unless you truly understand it and how that all uh, would have existed and looked in these, these earthen vats um, of which we do the same thing with the indigo dyeing previously in the film uh, where there's a, hopefully we see a version of this, but there was a, an intro that was metalwork. So it was seeing the, the handle and eventually the sword of, of Viola Davis's characters being, being made, which I love that. I love that because yeah. this is one of the earliest metalwork in the, in the world, the tradition of which we see in 1823 comes from some of the earliest metalwork in the world, which is earthen vats pumping air down a thing where you've taken a bunch of bound grasses and you built up earth around it. So it's wedged in package of grasses that when you light it from the bottom and then you pump through tubes and pump extra air in, you can smelt metal, take simple clay. After first you take beeswax, carve the details, the really intricate details of, of, of the handle of your sword. And then you pack mud over it. Uh, and then poke a hole, little hole in the bottom and a hole in the top, pour in that smelted metal, the beeswax chips right out the bottom. Once we cool it, I crack it, crack, 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 revealing the yeah. stem sword. Like there are so many pieces embedded in that film that are existing in the, in the backdrop, in the background. <laughs> which, yeah, I was like, I want to jump. I want to jump on this one right quick. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I'm just going to say it because you're saying it in a, I mean, I like, I like the way you, you don't have any false humility about it, but I don't think you're stating it as strongly as just be straight. Uh -huh. The rendering of Africa that was achieved, like the architecture, the spaces in Woman King is groundbreaking. It just is. It's groundbreaking. There's never been anything else like it, honestly. And it's really clear to me, like when I saw it, I was like, because I used to always think, I mean, if you travel around Africa at all, and you even had just a little bit of imagination, you can say, wow, under better circumstances, meaning, you know, minus white supremacy, essentially, the way we render Africa would look something like what you see in a Kurosawa film or something. You know what I mean? And one of the things that is clear to me when I saw it, and you, you, you just said everything, like literally, like a bunch of my notes, you just went down and checked them off one after the other. Like people not having shoes on. Like we know one of the first things that happens is they stigmatize us against ourselves, you know, because they've told us that there are certain metrics that equal civilization, sophistication, these kinds of things. And there's certain metrics that mean the absence of that, right? So you're already pushing through all these things where you're not, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not just about getting at what it was like. It's like understanding that you've been taught to in the self hate what it is that you actually come out of. And really it's a false understanding. That's this incredible book. I love this book. I've given it this book I probably give it more copies of this book to other people than any other book. It's a book by this Japanese writer named Tanazaki. It's called In Praise of Shadows. 
It's a deep book because basically what it's about is this Japanese, he was really a writer, but he was a thinker too. He's talking about the difference between Western values. I don't mean philosophical, I mean aesthetic values and Japanese aesthetic values. And the story I always love, he goes to and he's talking about a bathroom. He was like, the first time I went to West and they had all these ceramics and all these polished surfaces. That's my favorite that. story too. It was That's like, I story. couldn't even get a shit on, man. The shit just shut me down. He was like, when it's time for me to get a shit, I want to go into a dark, warm, full of wooden space that makes me comfortable with having a good, you know, where I'm sitting in the proper way, good bowel movement. And he, so... So it's like, it's that kind of thing, but you know what I mean? Exponentially, when it comes to black people, exponentially piled on us. So to even get at our truth, you got to dig through all this other stuff where they basically stigmatize us against ourselves. It's like, you know, the first thing they do, okay, a jet black dude in a red suit. When I grew up, dark people shouldn't wear red suits. I heard this, I don't know who said this. Where the hell did I get this from? Right now. There's nothing more amazing than a dark-skinned brother or sister in a red suit on the face of the earth, like optically. There's nothing more amazing than a very dark-skinned black person with really white teeth. I can't do that. I got really good teeth. I got my teeth fixed, but you know what I'm saying? But I can't do that. It's an optical thing, and they definitely cannot do that. So, of course, what they do is they stigmatize it. They said menstruacy, they do all these other kinds of shit to stigmatize this miracle of nature, a very dark-skinned person with white teeth or a red suit. Okay, so, so much of what we're going through is we're trying to cut through hundreds, hundreds of years of this kind of bullshit, man, just to get at a thing that's truth that should just be a fact. It should be, you know, I like, I like to make the distinction between truth and facts. We're trying to get that truth, but some shit is just facts. You know what I mean? So it's like what I saw in your work in there was like an unprecedented, just complete blasted through so much of that stuff. I know I can see when you talk about what you're doing, it's funny to me because you grin a lot when you're talking about what you're doing. That's your griot thing, because, you know, it's like you just you talk about and you're grinning because that's what fires you up. I can see that's really what fires you up, getting the shit right. You know what I mean? And so I, I don't know. Like I just say, you know, I love the movie. I think there's a better movie. I, I don't think the movie. OK, let me put this because I don't want it to be like shade. I really love the movie. I was fired up. I was like, well, I've been waiting my whole life to a movie with Viola Davis running around her action shit like this. But, you know, I've seen better action sequences and things. So I know the bar can be higher. I want to see the bar higher in those spaces. But on the level of the look of the thing, I was like, yo, hands down, this shit is fucking amazing, you know? And it's amazing, like I'm saying, not in slick ways. It's amazing in quiet ways an accumulation of quiet ways that add up to a big, a bigger picture, you know what I mean, of what we're seeing. And it's like, when things get right like this, they actually teach us how to look at ourselves, you know, in a different kind of way. Because you, you, it's like you're getting a mirror that's been cleaned for the first time. You've just been seeing everything your whole life in these warped mirrors, and now you're getting a mirror, an accurate, clear mirror of what we look like. And so, you know, I, I definitely had to just give you straight up praise on that level, man. It was like, you know, really, really dope.
man, I was like, wow, this is, I don't know who this cat is because I did not know who you were. I was like, I don't know. I didn't know. I knew your name from Ava's thing. I missed it. I can never get the name. When, when they see us. Yeah, yes. I knew your name from that, but I didn't know this was the same person. So I did, I, you know, it dovetailed in my head at a certain point. I was like, oh, shit. Okay, right. Now, now I see what Brad is talking about because he was telling me about you from before. <laughs> Man, I smile about it because how great is it to go to, I was going to say discover, which is not what I do. What I do is I learn and listen from other people. I'm not discovering the dancing. I'm allowing other people to share with me the things and traditions of which they believe in and practice in. And then to go be able to replicate those things from the past, some of which is no longer existing mm-hmm. today. Like to go and then make it, and then, and then AJ have the background recognize it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our background, you know, they recognize these things. They went and just occupied it. The looming, all that traditional looming when I was back in Ebonia, which the artist section of the kingdom, for those that don't know, the kingdom that we built is also a world heritage site and it exists in the country Benin and you can visit it. It's called Ebonia. And they have a crafts area which they make. They use the same looms that we depict in the film. Um, uh, and, and those looms, that, that system has stayed intact for a long time. So how beautiful is it to actually go make that stuff and then be able to be a participant in the creative process of, of sharing the value of that to other people and maybe less inclined to, to understand that, but are open enough that, that when you have made your case, it's able to exist. One, one of the big things we did that was expensive too was... Mm-hmm. Make that earth red. <clears throat> yeah. um, that was not easy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and fortunately, you know, Gina Prince Blythewood, that's the director of the film. She is a legend in, in the industry. And, and no one could have made the movie like that. Right. got so much through, like what we were able to get through, besides her and her strength and clarity of vision. But uh, yeah, you know, we saw the value of that red earth. That red earth is a bony. And that red earth, the path of red earth, a lot of people, our own ancestors walked that path before they got put on ships in the coast of Eden. Um, uh, and that's, that is what it is. But that red earth is because it has a high clay content. So, so all of those things were, were, were built into through space. Um, and it makes me I happy. Wanna, um, yeah. I want to wind us down because it's about to be five o'clock and I have to, something I have to move on to. Um, but I want, do want to say is that Negroes in Miami and Atlanta didn't get the memo around red, wearing red on dark skin. And uh, that's a memory. Uh, yeah, because those are liberated, yeah. <laughs> relatively liberated spaces. <laughs> I mean, Atlanta, you know how we persist. We persist. we persist, despite whatever stigmatizing they put on what we do, we be persistent regardless. It's you know? Miami. Yeah. In, in, in Atlanta, I think about at least fifty percent of the dark skin Eagles got on red, red and black. It ain't no, it ain't, it ain't no denying it. <laughs> I just saw this interview with Miles Davis, and they were asking him how he chooses, like, you know, new members in his band. And I mean, that's like Miles's accomplices. Is that's like Train, Wayne, Short, Herb. I mean, it's a high bar. He was like, I just look at how they hold their instrument. 
If they can't hold their interest, man, instantly, I know they can't play nothing. I look at how, if I don't have a red suit on Miles City, if I don't even looking good, I know I can't get into anything. That would mm-hmm. seem to be irrational, but mm-hmm. we know how we are. I mean, it's like, it's real. It's a real thing. It's a real thing, you know. If you so, look at Thelonious Monk, man, I'm just reading this by wisdom or listening to it, the long one. And that, you know, he was just a weird dude. That whole aesthetic with the big ass glasses and the and the French berets. That wasn't even that was the way he liked to dress. Yeah. And then Dizzy took it on and then the rest of his history with the whole beat dick movement. But uh yeah. but um my friend's about to leave me, so I need to wind this down. <laughs> oh. Anyway, it was good to talk to you guys. It's so illuminating, man. And I'm hoping you guys work together on something small first. Don't let it have, don't have to be something big like a feature or blah, blah, blah. Why don't you do some, uh, an installation together? There's it so many, there's such a, a nexus on the way y'all think and the way y'all process information that something, just do well, it. Well, I keep trying. I keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that can happen soon. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, man. Yeah. All right, brothers. Thanks for having we'll talk me. Soon. All right. Man. Appreciate you, AJ. Uh, I appreciate you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.